0: The Darkness in Us is a true crime podcast that covers cases containing information not suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, everybody, and welcome to The Darkness in Us. I'm your host, Hannah, and here I talk about true crime cases from all over the world, getting a closer look at some of the darkest among us. You can expect the use of adult language and sensitive topics that you may find disturbing. Each episode contains trigger warnings, and if you're not able to listen, feel free to skip over that episode and catch the next one. Now let's talk true crime. What's up, guys? My name is Hannah, and I am the host here at The Darkness in Us. I want to start this episode out by saying just how excited I am about this podcast I've been obsessed with true crime for so long, and I'm excited to create a place where I can connect with other true crime junkies like myself and talk about these cases with you. So I hope that if you're listening, you enjoy it. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at the darkness and us podcast. I'll post pictures of each case on there as the episodes come out. So if you're following, you can just kind of get a better idea of the details of the case and put it alongside visuals. So before we begin, a couple of trigger warnings for this episode are murder, child murder, rape, incest, and sexual and psychological abuse. If any of those things are going to be triggering for you in any way at all, please just skip over this episode and catch the next one. I also want to add that I'm going to kind of go back and forth a little bit to tell the story from different points, but I promise you it is all going to come together. So, we begin this episode in 1987. Priscilla Gustafson and her two children, Abigail and William, as well as her unborn child, were tragically and viciously murdered in their home in Townsend, Massachusetts. Now, despite the murders taking place in 1987, I'm going to go back and tell you about the very eerie prequel that happened in 1986, one year prior. In 1986, the Andrews family was living in the town of Pepperell, Massachusetts. Brian Andrews and his two daughters, 15-year-old Annie and 8-year-old Jessica, were unfortunately grieving the loss of their wife and mother who had died of cancer. As a now single parent, Brian found himself having to adjust to his new normal and was having to take on more hours at work to provide for his family. This resulted in Annie and Jessica spending more time alone together, which actually strengthened their relationship, especially in such a difficult time after the loss of their mom. They were all still a close-knit family, though, despite the tragedy and the time they spent apart, and reportedly had no issues with anyone. Annie, the oldest daughter, was attending high school and met a boy named Daniel LaPlante. However, before going on to the next part of the story, I need to give you a little background info on Daniel. Daniel LaPlante was born in 1970 to parents who, unfortunately, not only didn't protect Daniel, but were actually perpetrators in the physical, emotional, psychological, and sexual abuse that Daniel suffered. One of the sources that I read for this case actually said, too, that Daniel was abused by several different adults, but that his own dad was the most frequent abuser. So, obviously, there are some very traumatic issues going on in Daniel's life as a child, and as he began school, he continued to struggle there, too. He was described by fellow students as scary and weird, and he had very few friends. He also had academic and social struggles, and because of his, quote, strange behaviors, was sent to a psychiatrist on behalf of the school. Now, unfortunately, instead of receiving help from the psychiatrist, he sadly began to be sexually assaulted by the psychiatrist too. So, side note here, when I first read that, it just broke my heart. You know, I don't sympathize with killers and what he did later in life is not justifiable in any way. But fuck, you know, he has a terrible home life. The people that He's supposed to be able to trust and depend on his own parents, constantly abuse him. He struggles in school, and just when it looks like he might finally have someone in his corner that's going to help him, they fucking abuse him too. So anyways, things are obviously no better at this point, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that they have gotten much worse. Um, And Daniel begins to go down a criminal path. He begins burglarizing homes, and while he's there, he not only steals, but he would do things like move objects around as kind of a way to play mind games with the families that lived in those houses. But when burglarizing was no longer good enough for Daniel, you know, like it didn't feed that need he had anymore, he begins to obsess over a girl who turns out to be Annie Andrews, and that's where we come full circle. So as I mentioned earlier, Annie is in high school. She's now 16 years old and is the same age as Daniel. One day she gets a phone call from a boy who says that his name is Daniel LaPlante. And he tells her that he went to the same school as she did and he got her phone number from a friend of his. As a 16-year-old, Annie was into boys now and, you know, she was excited about this phone call. And based on the very inaccurate description that Daniel gives of himself, where he says he's a blonde, handsome athlete, Annie agrees to go on a date with him. I'm not really sure why Daniel didn't think that Annie would see that he was not who he said he was, but he carried on with the plans for the date anyways and met Annie at her house. So Annie was surprised as anyone would be when she opened the front door and saw a boy who fit the opposite description of what she was given. He wasn't athletic, he had dark hair and not blonde hair, and it said that he had sort of like a kind of greasy or dirty appearance. But being that Annie was a kind hearted girl, she decided to give Daniel a chance and went on the date anyways. However, she would quickly regret making that decision. During the date, um, Daniel kept asking her questions about her mother's death and you know, it was just not the charismatic boy that she had spoken with on the phone. So Annie had just had enough at that point and decided that she was done with the date and ditched Daniel. But she wasn't thinking that now he knew where she lived. So Annie gets home and because of all the questions that Daniel had asked her about her mom, she decided that she wanted to conduct a seance to try and contact her mom. Now, I'm not sure if it was just because she missed her mom, or maybe she had some of the same questions that Daniel was asking her, and she wanted to know the answers. But either way, um, she got her sister Jessica, and they went down to their basement together with a Ouija board and some of their mom's belongings and started the seance. However, their dad was not having it, and he told them that they needed to quit the seance and come back upstairs, and they listened to their dad. But... Later on, they began to hear knocking on their bedroom walls that they thought was a spirit from their seance. So the girls started to ask the spirit questions in hopes of getting some answers, but after a little time had passed, the knocking was no longer the only spiritual activity that was going on. Objects in their home began to disappear, items were moved from one place to another, and furniture eventually began to be moved. The girls began to get a little worried at this point and told their dad that it was a ghost from the seance they had done. However, their dad didn't believe them and thought that they were actually the source of all the chaos. So some things continued to go on in the house. Um, this quote-unquote, and I'm doing air quotes, um, this quote-unquote spirit began to take things farther by writing strange messages on their walls and ketchup. And he would whisper things to them like, quote, I'm back. Find me if you can, end quote. So every time that these things were going on, the girls were mostly home alone. And at one point, they got so scared that they ran to their neighbor's house to wait on their dad to get home. Once he got home, he saw a large mess and started to search through the house. To his absolute shock, he found a boy who had been living in the walls of their home, dressed in his deceased wife's clothes. This boy, if you haven't guessed it by now, was Daniel LaPlante, who was also acting as the quote-unquote spirit to torment the girls. I would literally shit myself into oblivion if that ever happened to me. You don't expect to find a boy. I mean, you don't even believe your daughter's. And so, you finally decide to look through the house because it's a mess, and you find a boy wearing your deceased wife's clothes. So, I mean, I would just, I would be terrified. (laughs) So, he and Daniel apparently got into a fight at this point, but Daniel managed to get away. Police were called after this, and they conducted a search of the home. During the search, they found a hidden door behind Annie's built-in closet in her room, And when they opened it, they found Daniel curled up inside. So this fucker came back or like never left. I don't know if he never left or came back. But after the incident where the dad found Daniel, you automatically assume that he might have left. But when they did the search of the house, that fucker was still there. Like, who does that? So Daniel ended up being arrested. But... His sentence would only keep him in a juvenile facility for a few months. And once he was released, Daniel began stealing again. And eventually, he stole two guns from a neighbor's house. So now we're going to get back into the beginning to the 1987 murders of Priscilla and her children. We now know about the creepy 1986 incident Daniel's background, and know that he's now out of the juvenile facility and has stolen two guns. So Priscilla Jean Morgan was born on January 13, 1954, in Havelock, North Carolina. Sadly, there's not much information about Priscilla that I could find, so I'm not sure when Priscilla got to Massachusetts, but I did find that she was a nursery school teacher, someone who everyone said was sweet and caring, she sang in her church choir and was dedicated to her faith. She had been married to her husband, Andrew Gustafson, for 12 years at the time of her murder, and the two shared three children together, Abigail, who was seven, William, who was five, and their unborn third child. On December 1, 1987, Daniel LaPlante walked to the Gustafsons' home with sinister intentions. Armed with one of the guns he had stolen, he arrived at the Gustafson home to find Priscilla and William. Abigail wasn't home when Daniel initially arrived because she was still not home from school yet, and Andrew wasn't home because he was still at work. And all of this is pretty shocking because, you know, that's midday. Like, typically, you know, crimes are committed at night because you kind of have that cover from the darkness, but this is literally before school has even let out, or at least before Abigail had gotten home. So people are conducting their daily routines. You don't know if someone might be out walking their dog. I mean, it's just, it was pretty crazy to me to know that it was during the day. So what exactly happened next is not completely clear as far as the details of exactly what took place. But Daniel somehow got Priscilla into the master bedroom where he brutally beat and raped her. He then shot her twice in the head, using a pillow to muffle the sound. She was just 33 years old at the time of her death. This next part is hard for me because I have a child, and, you know, even without one, it's just fucking sick. So, trigger warning here for child murder. Um, But after killing Priscilla, Daniel went and got five-year-old William and drowned him in the bathtub, and when seven-year-old Abigail got home from school shortly after, Daniel drowned her in the bathtub as well. Andrew Gustafson, Priscilla's husband and father of their children, finally arrived home at around five o'clock that evening. He had no idea what he was about to walk in to find. Because the house was quiet, an unusual occurrence in their happy, lively home— he made his way upstairs to see if he could find anyone there. Sadly, when he went into the master bedroom, he found his wife face down in their room with blood everywhere. In an interview with Andrew, he said, quote, I was too afraid to look for my children because I was afraid I would find them dead. It was shocking and unbelievable. I screamed. I wailed, end quote. Andrew decided to run from their home and called the police at a neighbor's house. Police arrived shortly after and found the bodies of William and Abigail in separate bathrooms. And honestly, I'm glad Andrew didn't find them because I couldn't imagine what that would have done to him on top of the fact that his whole family had just been murdered. So police found William and Abigail and they also found... 22 caliber bullet casings, as well as semen on the bed. They also found shoe prints in the flower bed outside of the family's home, but where was the killer? So detectives began their investigation that day and quickly compiled a list of potential suspects to include Daniel LaPlante. He was put on the list because he was a known criminal. He had just been released from the juvenile facility and he lived with his mother and stepfather, not even a mile from the Gustafsons' home. Detectives decided that they wanted to go and question him as a result of this. So, the day after the murders had taken place, December 2nd, police found and questioned Daniel. They asked him about his whereabouts the day prior, and he stated that he had been home watching TV all day until he later attended his six-year-old niece's birthday party. Police had nothing further to link Daniel to this case, So they left him at that. However, later on that same day, police went to Daniel LaPlante's home to question him again. I'm assuming because they went to verify his alibi and found out that it was bullshit. So they arrived at LaPlante's home to find Daniel outside on the porch, and when Daniel saw that police had come back, he actually took off running into the woods. This obviously made detectives extremely suspicious and they obtained a search warrant for the LaPlante home. Upon searching the home, they found several pieces of evidence that linked Daniel to the murders. Things like 22 caliber bullet casings that matched those found at the scene. The 22 caliber handgun that was used to shoot and kill Priscilla was found in the glove box of a vehicle that was sitting on the property sneakers that matched the prints found in the flower bed outside of the Gustafsons home, ligatures formed by various clothing items, a sock of Daniel's with fibers on it that matched fibers from the Gustafsons home, and a telephone that was stolen from the Gustafsons home. Now, one source I read also said that a hair matching that of Abigail was found on the sock that contained fibers but I wasn't 100% able to verify this, so I'm not exactly sure. So police now had more evidence to connect Daniel to the murders at the Gustafsons' home, and although DNA was still in its early stages, they did test Daniel's blood and found out that he was a type A secretor. If you're familiar with true crime, then you've likely heard of this before, but if not, I'll explain it. So, A person that is determined to be a type A secretor means that their ABO blood type is not only in their blood, but it can also be found in other bodily fluids such as saliva or mucus or semen. Those who aren't type A secretors don't show their ABO blood type in bodily fluids other than their blood. And this is caused by an individual carrying a particular gene or not. So, since Daniel was a Type A secretor, detectives were able to match the blood sample that they had taken from him to the semen sample that they had collected from the bed in the master bedroom. Detectives, at this point, were ready to make an arrest, but discovered that Daniel had actually fled the area, which caused a manhunt to ensue. During Daniel's brief two-day flee, he continued to commit crimes like breaking into a woman's home a couple of towns over and kidnapping her. Thankfully, the woman escaped Daniel's captivity, and he was found hiding in a dumpster 48 hours after the manhunt had begun. Police arrested 17-year-old Daniel LaPlante, and a year later, he was sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of Priscilla, Abigail, and William. While incarcerated, LaPlante was no model inmate, He was not remorseful for his crimes and actually attempted to sue courts on several different occasions for violating his religious rights. Like, get the fuck out of here. You know, I'm all for everyone having the right to their religion, but you have fucking killed four people, not three, four, because Priscilla was pregnant, and three of them are kids, like little children. So I really don't give a fuck about your religious rights and that just pissed me off. Like, who the fuck does he think he is? So he was trying to sue courts on several different occasions for violating his rights Um, and he claimed that he was denied religious materials and that was how his rights were violated, but I don't know exactly what came of that and I really don't even give a fuck because... (laughs) He is just an awful, awful human being. So years later in 2017, Daniel actually pleaded with a judge to, is it pleaded or pled with a judge, whatever way, um, to restructure his three consecutive no parole life sentences in hopes of being released later that same year. This came from the reversal of no-parole life sentencing for teenage killers that higher courts had established because of brain development at that age. A forensic psychiatrist, however, testified at this hearing that LaPlante's actions in 1987 had nothing to do with the development of his brain. He said that LaPlante acted as a cold-blooded killer. So I wanted to add a little piece of the audio from that hearing. Um, I'm going to add one from the psychiatrist here, and then I actually have a couple others I'm going to add as we go. So this was a little piece of the psychiatrist's testimony. As he said to me, he wanted his needs to be met and did carry out what he intended to do, is to kill the entire family, and he went about it in a very systematic fashion. So I can kind of get, you know, where higher courts come from. And a lot of people who are activists for this, I can understand wanting the justice system to be just. And if people, you know, have the chance to be rehabilitated, then obviously you want them to be better people. But I just feel like how often does that happen? Like how often do you hear about some horrible person who viciously murdered people all of a sudden, just being a stand-up citizen, you know, and I just feel like Daniel, especially, just had some fucking nerve, you know, to even think that he deserved to be released early, to have a shot at life when he took the lives of four people who were just innocent. I mean, three of them were children. So, to be quite honest, I mean, fuck, fuck Daniel Laplante. Like, his ass can rot fuck in fucking prison, and really, he should be thankful that that's the worst that he got. So, to continue on, family members of the Gustafsons also pled with, or is it pleaded? I still don't know. I'm just going to say pled. They pled with the judge not to grant him early release and to keep him incarcerated. They thought that the apology he issued at the hearing was hollow, and I'm not even going to put insert his apology because it is pathetic, but I will insert some audio from the family. Do not believe that he is rehabilitated and worthy of parole. He is a menace and a threat to society. And here's another one. I liken him to a rabid dog that needs to be put down. He needs to stay in jail for the rest of his life. So those two were actually members of both Priscilla's family and Andrew's. And I feel like, honestly, you can just hear, like, in their voices how passionate they still are about it. And rightfully so. I mean, he he took their family from them in an evil, evil way. So after his hearing in 2017, he was denied early release. He actually pled again in 2019 and was also denied. Today, Daniel LaPlante is 51 years old and is still incarcerated in a Massachusetts state prison where he belongs. So that is the tragic case of the murders of Priscilla Gustafson and her three children. Now, I do want to leave you on a happier note, so um, I will give you this little extra piece. Um, Andrew Gustafson, Priscilla's husband, actually remarried on January 1st, 1989. He and his wife chose that date to signify new beginnings. The woman he married was 42-year-old Carol, I don't know her last name, but Carol, who was actually a widow herself as her husband had died of brain cancer in 1984. Andrew was interviewed and said, quote, it certainly would have been much more difficult without her. I don't know if I would have made it or not without her. Now I have a reason to get up in the morning, something to live for. End quote. The two also agreed that they would wear their wedding bands on their left hand and the wedding bands from their first marriages on their right hand. And that just really touched my heart. I thought it was so sweet and just respectful and you know showed how much they loved their spouses and honored their memories. So that will officially end this episode. Um, I do hope that you all enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram at the darkness and us podcast. I'm going to post some pictures there and you can go check them out. So until the next one, you guys. Bye.